This is the Rounds Table. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another great week of the Rounds Table. Thank you for tuning in and joining us. I'm joined today by Dr. Ashley Manuk, one of our favorite co hosts on the show, who joins us from Trenton, Ontario. Ashley, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Karen. Happy to be here. Well, I hope you had a lovely holiday season and Happy New Year. Let's get right into it. Why don't you introduce and take us through your article? Today, I'm going to talk about an article that was published in Annals of Internal Medicine regarding gradual versus abrupt smoking cessation. Okay, so what did the study find? What's the bottom line, Ashley? In a randomized controlled trial comparing smoking cessation strategies in approximately 700 smokers, those who attempted to quit abruptly were significantly more likely to be successful than those who attempted to quit gradually. Furthermore, those who initially expressed a preference to quit gradually were actually less likely to succeed regardless of which strategy they were allocated to use. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Why did you choose this article, Ashley? Do you deal with smoking cessation a lot in your practice? I have lots of smokers in my practice, and I try to make a point of advising and supporting cessation at most visits that I have with smokers. So for my practice, it would be nice if I were able to point patients to some evidence regarding which strategies are effective so that I can counsel them more appropriately. Okay, well, it sounds very practical and applicable to your daily life as a family physician. Tell us, Ashley, what was the design of the study and where did it take place? This was a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial comparing two strategies of smoking cessation, gradual versus abrupt, so like cold turkey. The study included 700 adult smokers recruited from 30 primary care practices in England between 2009 and 2011. So just to remind our listeners about what a non-inferiority trial is, it's not to test the superiority of one intervention over the other. It actually assumes that there is no difference between the two strategies of smoking cessation in this trial, and it presets a margin or a difference between the rates or the outcomes to say that if your outcome rates don't reach those numbers, then the trial or the strategy in this case is non-inferior. In this case of this particular study, they set a non-inferiority margin of 19% reduction. So in other words, if there was less than a 19% difference between abrupt and gradual smoking cessation rates, then that would reach non-inferiority or the trial would be positive for non-inferiority. So Ashley, who were the patients they included in the study then? So to be included in this study, the participants had to smoke at least 15 cigarettes a day or 12.5 grams of loose-leaf tobacco a day, or have an end-expiratory carbon monoxide concentration of at least 15 parts per million. The people also had to express a willingness to quit two weeks after trial enrollment. You know, these are people who are ready to quit smoking. They are past the pre-contemplative stage. Mm -hmm. They were excluded if they were already enrolled in a smoking cessation program, if they had contraindications to nicotine replacement therapy, or if they were participating in other medical trials. Now, interestingly, the study did include patients that had other substance use addictions or severe medical or psychiatric conditions unless their condition was deemed to be so severe that they were not likely to meet the demands of the trial. Taken all together, the participants had an average age of 49, equally split between males and females, mostly white, and smoking about a pack of cigarettes per day. Would you say that's a patient that you recognize in your practice? I would say that is probably the typical smoker that I see. 
Okay, Ashley, so tell us, what was the study question here? How did they seek to answer whether abrupt cessation versus gradual cessation was a non-inferior strategy to each other? All the participants in the study were asked to set a quit date, again, two weeks after enrollment into the trial. The intervention differed between groups only during these two weeks. So the participants were randomly assigned to one of two smoking cessation strategies, as we mentioned, the cold turkey strategy, versus gradual cessation, which meant they were to reduce their smoking to half of their baseline amount by the end of the first week, and then to a quarter of their baseline amount by the end of the second week. Mm -hmm. So the participants in the abrupt cessation group were asked to continue smoking their usual amount until the quit date, about two weeks later. Note that upon enrollment, patients were also asked which smoking cessation they would prefer, abrupt or gradual, although this had no bearing on their actual allocation. So then both groups were provided nicotine patches for the two weeks leading to the quit date, and the participants were then seen by a research nurse at their own primary care practice weekly for two weeks before the quit date, then on the day right before the quit date, and then weekly for four weeks after quitting. And then finally, at eight weeks after the quit date. So these sessions were therapy sessions that are typical to a smoking cessation program in the UK. Patients were also assessed at each session for how much they smoked, withdrawal symptoms, and measured exhaled carbon monoxide concentrations. And that just added some objectivity to the patient-reported smoking status. Okay, so they had both subjective reporting and a sort of biochemical or objective test to determine whether somebody actually quit, even if they said whether they had or hadn't. Correct. And Ashley, I have a question. You know, the UK does this very intensive follow-up for smoking cessation. Would you say your colleagues in Ontario do the similar kind of follow-up for smoking cessation? Yes. So lots of the family health teams in Ontario, as well as the public health units, do have smoking cessation program, like the STOP program that people may have heard of. And it's probably fairly similar to this in terms of the counseling that they get from nurses. Okay, Ashley, so what were the primary outcomes that they were measuring in this trial? The main primary outcome is something called the Russell Standard Abstinence, which is basically a standardized way of assessing the success of smoking cessation. So Russell Standard Abstinence at four weeks was the primary outcome. And the Russell Standard uses an intention-to-treat model, which assumes that patients who are lost to follow-up are smoking. So that's important to note. Abstinence is validated by an exhaled carbon monoxide concentration of less than 10 parts per million. Any secondary outcomes that they were interested in? Yes. So the secondary outcomes were the the Russell Standard Abstinence at eight weeks, and then again at six-month follow-up, so sort of a longer-term follow-up. And they also compared four weeks abstinence between participants who initially expressed a preference to quit gradually versus quit abruptly or had no preference at all. That's kind of neat. Yeah. Okay, Ashley, well, um, we're set up nicely here. The table is set, the candles are lit, and we're about to light up a cigarette. Before we quit, what were the primary outcomes that they found? Okay, here we go, the findings. So, primary outcome, the four-week Russell Standard abstinence was achieved by about 40% in the gradual cessation group and about 50% in the abrupt cessation group. Even though the study was designed as a non-inferiority trial, it actually established superiority. So the people attempting to quit gradually 
were significantly less likely to achieve abstinence than those quitting abruptly. So Ashley, I wanted to bring up an important point about the finding of superiority here, which was something to do with what's called a worst case scenario analysis. So in this particular study, they had a fairly high loss to follow up rate at the four week mark, which was their primary outcome. So in the gradual cessation arm, 48 patients were lost to follow up and 35 in the abrupt cessation group. Now what a worst case scenario analysis does is it assumes in one group, so in this case, the abrupt cessation, that they all continued to smoke. And in the testing group, which in this case is the abrupt cessation, that they all quit, all those people who were lost to follow up. So if you did this, the actual uh, primary outcome rates are non-inferior to each other. They almost are the exact same. So I'm not sure what, whether you can truly say from this study whether it's actually a superior trial. Yeah, Kieran, that is a, a really interesting point to bring up. Although I would say that the, the remainder of the results that I'll describe sort of also point in the direction of abrupt as being possibly superior to gradual smoking cessation. And also, you know, in the case of smoking, I think it's, it's a pretty valid inference to make that people who aren't showing up or are lost to follow up are pretty likely to be smoking, meaning they didn't want to follow up because they don't want to have to say that they have been unsuccessful. That's a fair point. So you mentioned the longer term follow-ups and abstinence rates at eight weeks and six months. Was there differences there? Yes. So the eight-week and six-month prolonged abstinence was also superior in the abrupt cessation group. Right. And I can see that they don't have nearly the same imbalance in dropout rates between the two sides either. So that's, I guess it's a fair point. What about participation in the study program overall? So significantly fewer participants in the gradual cessation group actually attended the visit that was scheduled just before the quit date. In the abrupt cessation group, there were 59 no-shows to that appointment. But in the gradual cessation group, there were 113 no-shows. And participants in the gradual cessation group were also significantly less likely to make a quit attempt during the study period. And that's defined as at least 24 hours of self-reported abstinence. What about what patients reported as they would prefer as far as quit strategies were concerned? The sort of extra special thing about the study is they decided to ask the patients at the beginning, well, which way would you prefer to quit smoking? And so at baseline, about 50% said they would have chosen gradual cessation. 32% would have chosen abrupt. And the remainder had no preference. The study showed that those who preferred gradual cessation were significantly less likely to be abstinent at four weeks than those who preferred abrupt cessation, which was 38% abstinent versus 52% abstinent, respectively. For those who preferred gradual cessation, there was actually no statistical difference in the abstinence rates, whether they were actually assigned to quit abruptly against their will or to quit gradually. There was a trend toward better success in those allocated to quit abruptly. So they are able to ascertain smoking status at the long-term outcomes, which we said there was no imbalance at that point. But as far as participating in the smoking cessation program and preferences that dictate their success, there appears to be some, some important messages in there. Yeah, and, and actually, of all the patients in both groups who did not achieve abstinence at four weeks, 60% of them said they would have chosen gradual cessation. Well, thanks, Ashley. Tell us, what do you think the main learning points that listeners should take away? 
So I'd say that based on this study, it appears that abrupt smoking cessation is likely a more successful smoking cessation strategy than gradual cessation. And, you know, I notice this is something I sort of see in my practice, whereas you have these patients who they always tell you that they're cutting back and they want to cut down first, they're cutting down, but they never actually take that final step and quit smoking. So I think that sort of corresponds to what our study is showing here. You know, nonetheless, I would say one important takeaway from this article is that all strategies of smoking cessation really should be supported. Any attempt to quit smoking is better than no attempt. This is just sort of a way for us to steer patients in one direction versus another. That sounds like very practical advice. The one thing I thought was kind of shocking for me was that the success rate, despite either strategy, was only 20%, sort of your best case scenario. So I guess it's just a lesson to remember that despite your best efforts, only one-fifth of your patients will actually achieve success in quitting smoking. So it's a difficult habit to quit. Hey listeners, it's Emily and Shaliza back with a special segment. Shaliza, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be back, Emily, and hello to our listeners. What do you have to share? I've digested the new recommendations for blood transfusions outlined by the American Association of Blood Banks, and I'm going to break it down for you. Sounds great. Can you give us some background? Of course. Traditionally, the decision to transfuse in the United States was based on the 1030 rule, so that transfusions were used to maintain a hemoglobin level above 10 grams per deciliter and a hematocrit above 30%. The issues around such a liberal threshold are risks to the patient, such as transmission of bloodborne pathogens and transfusion-related reactions, and also cost-effectiveness of the transfusion, given that blood is a limited resource that depends on donor supply. So what's the change? So the American Association of Blood Banks updated the transfusion guidelines with two key recommendations. The first being that adult patients who are hemodynamically stable should receive red blood cell transfusions when their hemoglobin is 70 grams per liter or less instead of 100 grams per liter. This includes critical care patients. The second recommendation is that for patients who are scheduled for orthopedic surgeries, cardiac surgeries, and those with cardiovascular disease, an RBC transfusion threshold of 80 grams per liter is recommended. So Shaliza, are there any concerns with these new recommendations? Definitely. One of the potential concerns as a consequence of restrictive thresholds are longer red blood cell storage times. On the other hand, the overall rate of adverse events increases in a liberal transfusion strategy. In this case, the main differences would be transfusion-related reactions and something called TACO. TACO is transfusion-associated circulatory overload, whereby patients get volume overloaded from too much blood being transfused just too fast, in which case the transfusion needs to be held and supportive care put in place. Okay, I see. Can you take us through the evidence behind these changes? A literature review was performed, including studies from 1950 to May 2016, that evaluated thresholds for red blood cell transfusions. So this included evidence from 31 RCTs, including 12,587 participants were included in the analysis. Restrictive versus liberal cutoffs were compared, and these liberal cutoffs being 90 to 100 grams per liter. And what this demonstrated was that restrictive thresholds did not lead to increased risk to patients, those being 30-day mortality, myocardial infarctions, cerebral vascular accidents, rebleeding, pneumonia, or thromboembolisms. Another study was done regarding red blood cell storage duration, which included 13 RCTs and 5,515 participants. And in this analysis, they demonstrated that fresher blood, which was stored for 10 days or less, did not lead to improved clinical outcomes compared to standard-issued blood, which is stored for up to 42 days. Are there any other important patient factors to consider when deciding whether or not to transfuse? 
Definitely. Some of the patient groups to consider when deciding to transfuse are patients with acute coronary syndrome, severe thrombocytopenia, patients treated for hematologic or oncological reasons who are at risk of bleeding, and chronic transfusion-dependent anemia patients. Symptomatic patients may be transfused at higher levels of hemoglobin. And some other more specific guidelines exist for cases such as heart failure, trauma, septic shock, acute bleeding, and chronic kidney disease. So for clinicians listening, what are the take-home points for their practices? The hemoglobin level, overall context, patient preferences, and alternative therapy should be considered before transfusing. Hospitals themselves have developed general guidelines to assist with this based on three main principles. One, optimizing hematopoiesis through the use of perioperative iron supplementation, for example. Two, minimizing bleeding. And three, optimizing tolerance of anemia. It's important to screen patients for anemia in advance of surgeries, as preoperative anemia is strongly associated with the risk of transfusion in surgical candidates. The decision to transfuse is not one to be taken lightly, but let's be positive about that. (laughs) Be positive? That's my blood type. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Emily. Let's move on to my uh, article for the week. I looked at a a very interesting, of course, my interest in palliative care meta-analysis that looked at all of the palliative care outcomes published in the literature to date. And it was published in the Journal of American Medical Association on November 22nd. And the first uh, author was Cavaliertos. Okay, so what would you say was sort of the main message for your study of choice? Well, actually, this was a systematic review and meta-analysis that examined existing randomized control trials of palliative care interventions, and it found that palliative care significantly improves quality of life and symptom burden up to three months, and it's also associated with enhanced advanced care planning, overall satisfaction with care, and lower health care utilization. However, the findings of this are attenuated or in some cases even lost by the overall influence of bias in the included studies. And what I think that really highlights to me as someone interested in palliative care research is a need for further high-quality evidence for the effect of palliative care. So word on the street is you have a special interest in palliative care. Is that why you chose this article? Yes, it's no secret that I have a particular passion for palliative care. But I think broader context, as the burden of illness across our populations increases, as patients get older and are living longer and developing more comorbidity, the accompanying impact that that has on quality of life and symptoms continues to be a major, major challenge. And thus, that's put to inpatient and outpatient models of palliative care to try to help. Palliative care is becoming probably just a bigger and bigger part of all of our practices, I would say. Yeah, and there are two prior reviews of the literature, one in 2008 and 2011, that really had mixed evidence as far as the overall effectiveness of palliative care. As the increasing interest and number of trials are conducted in palliative care research, this particular study wanted to update the overall evidence that has occurred in the last five years since the last one. You mentioned this is a systematic review, and sometimes that can be quite involved in terms of how these studies are designed. Can you take us through that? So basically, they did what's typical of a high-quality systematic review and meta-analysis. They searched all of the relevant major databases, you know, Medline, Embase, Cochrane, all of the ones you can think of. And they included everything that's ever been published as far as a randomized control trial in palliative care up to and including July 2016. Okay, so they're looking at randomized control trials, you know, randomized control trials between what and what? 
So they only looked at randomized control trials, not other observational studies. It had to be in adults, and it also could include interventions to affect the caregivers as well. Of course, it being palliative care, the adults had to have life-threatening illness. And they mainly looked at trials that reported outcomes that looked at quality of life, symptoms, survival, reported mood, advanced care planning, place of death, resource utilization, healthcare expenditures, and satisfaction with care. The sort of principal domains that we look at when it comes to effectiveness of palliative care. And you mentioned there's a whole number of outcomes they were looking for. Was there a specific primary outcome of interest? They wanted to look at this population or type of patients that were included in these trials to look at effectively routine care or what the existing standard of care was for a particular disease state versus the intervention of palliative care services in their overall care. And they asked the primary question, is palliative care associated with improved patient and caregiver outcomes? So Kieran, how did they go about measuring these outcomes of interest? The three primary outcomes of interest were quality of life, symptom burden, and survival. They obviously provided narrative descriptions of the other domains that I mentioned, things like advanced care planning, site of death, mood, etc. But they measured those three primary outcomes at between a one and three month mark, and then also between a four and six month mark. Take us to the results. So there's two things to say about that. First, in any systematic review and meta-analysis, you assess the risk of bias for each study, in this case trial, that you include. So they measured bias both in the subjective arm of things, so in the trials that looked at patient-reported outcomes, symptoms, quality of life, but they also measured bias in the objective outcomes, like survival. And they used the Cochrane's Collaboration Tool, which is a very well-validated tool for systematic reviews and assessing bias. Then the second thing they did was, you know, different trials used different scores or different indexes to measure things like quality of life and symptom burden. And they wanted to try to standardize these tools. So what they did was they calculated the standardized mean difference for the tools that that trial used, and then they converted those standardized mean differences to two different measurement tools that are widely used in palliative care. To assess somebody's overall symptom score, you can use the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Scale, which is a scale from 0 to 90, and the minimally clinical important difference on that scale is about 5.7 points. The other scale they used for quality of life was the Functional Assessment of Chronic Illness, or FACET-PAL, for palliative care. That's a tool that has a score of 0 to 184, and the minimally clinically important difference on that is 9 points to say that, yes, you've made a significant difference in somebody's quality of life. Of all the studies that they you know, retrieved in their initial search strategy, 43 randomized control trials were included. That included close to 13,000 patients in those trials together, and about almost 2,500 caregivers were also assessed in those trials. Patients were on average about 67 years old, 70% of those had cancer, and 30% had heart failure. So really either trials looking at the cancer population or mainly heart failure. And this was in the United States. 65%, so two-thirds of the patients, were in an outpatient setting or an outpatient model. So what were the primary outcomes that were found? So I'll take you through quality of life first. They found that with the inclusion of palliative care in someone's care, there was a difference of 11 points at three months on the facet PAL score, but that was lost at six months. 
Now, if you only looked at trials that had a low risk of bias, there was only a five-point reduction, which, remember, was not determined to be minimally clinically important difference. And then if you tried to look at whether inpatient versus outpatient was more effective, they found that hospital-based interventions had much stronger associations. And whether that reflects, you know, the resource-intensive care that these types of patients require or not, not answered by this trial, but an interesting point nevertheless. And now what about the uh, symptom burden? So this was measured using the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Scale, remember, and they found a difference of 10 points at three months, but that was reduced to only three points at six months. And if you recall, the minimal difference that was important was only about six points. So again, it's sort of lost at six months. If you included trials that were only of low risk of bias, there was no improvement or no difference in the, in the Edmonton scale scores unless you limited those to hospital-based intervention. So the outpatient setting wasn't helpful. Okay. And how about the survival of these patients? So this lack of survival difference is an important thing to highlight in palliative care because stigma has existed and potentially still exists around the fact that palliative care may hasten death or shorten life when they become involved. I think, you know, this is something that can be used to say we can try to improve quality of life and symptom burden, but in no way are we shortening one's life through the provision of palliative care. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I do notice that some patients have almost an adverse reaction to the term palliative care. It can be scary for some people. Are there any other interesting points or observations that you want to make about the study? So in the narrative review, they, they highlighted the fact that patients and caregivers appeared to be more satisfied with care when palliative care was involved. So that's an important thing. There appeared to be improvement in some of the other domains that we talked about in the design, although these weren't formally quantified in the meta-analysis, things like advanced care planning and healthcare utilization. But, you know, as I said, there appears to be more advanced care planning with palliative care. They play a role in that. And there appears to be less healthcare utilization with the involvement of palliative care. And any other important limitations of this study that you thought were relevant? So as I mentioned in the bottom line, there's huge heterogeneity and limited quality of the evidence in the existing palliative care research to date. Only 16% of all the trials that were included in this were deemed to be low risk of bias when they were assessed by the Cochrane Collaboration Tool. And for that was for subjective outcomes. If you looked at the survival outcomes of so the objective outcomes, only 7% were at low risk of bias. So I think there are a few very important messages from that. One, palliative care outcomes are often subjective. You know, your reporting of your symptoms and your reporting of your quality of life. And it's hard to measure those in, in our traditional quantitative research methodologies, even with the validated tools that we have. And even the Cochrane tool itself, when we're looking at systematic reviews and evaluating those, isn't designed to evaluate the intricacies in conducting behavioral interventions amongst people who are seriously ill. So even the tool that is used in this study may not be the best one or because we, we just may not have one as of yet. Another point I wanted to make was that patient experience and understanding may be more important than some of the sort of quantitative outcomes you look and that's probably better measured with qualitative style research as opposed to quantitative research, which, which again, most of these randomized trials don't include. I, I agree that this is definitely a really tough area to get quantitative research. So what would you say is your takeaway from this study? For me, the really the main point is that this study highlights the limitations we have from the current palliative care research in measuring its overall impact and effect. And it kind of raises the question as to what our goals for the effects of palliative care should be. 
Should they be primarily to look at symptom control, quality of life? Should they be a healthcare utilization effect? You know, really, I think we need to define and come to accept what we think the role of palliative care should be, and that will dictate how we measure its overall effect. Maybe we have to hold it to a different standard than some of the other specialties. I agree. Well, thanks, Ashley. I think the last thing I would say before we move on is, you know, there appears to be a beneficial effect of palliative care in symptom control, in quality of life, and potentially some other domains, but we just need some better research to evaluate it. Okay, well, let's move on to my favorite segment of the show. It's the good stuff where we're talking about what we are reading about. Ashley, what's catching your attention in the new year? Well, I thought it would be a nice way to wrap up the holiday season by talking about death. Apparently, it's been established that heart-related deaths spike during Christmas in the United States. So that's the period between December 25th and January 7th. Now, in the U.S., this falls within the coldest period of the year, where death rates are already seasonally high due to being cold and influenza and that sort of thing. So you have this confounding factor, right? So there was a study recently published in the uh, Journal of the American Heart Association that was done by some researchers in Melbourne, Australia. And in this study, the researchers analyzed trends in death in New Zealand, where, of course, Christmas and New Year's are occurring during the summer when death rates are usually at a seasonal low. So that allowed the researchers to separate the winter effect from the holiday effect. They looked at a 25-year period between 1988 and 2013, where there were a total of about 740,000 deaths, many of which were cardiac deaths. And the researchers found a 4.2% increase in heart-related deaths occurring away from a hospital from December 25th to January 7th. And the average age of a person with a cardiac death was 76.2 during the Christmas period, compared with 77.1 during other times of the year. So they did establish that during the holidays, uh, there were more cardiac-related deaths and the people who were dying were slightly younger than you might expect them. Of course, we don't know exactly the reasons, but we can speculate possible reasons. So they're thinking, you know, emotional distress associated with the holidays, perhaps changes in diet and alcohol consumption, uh, maybe less staff at medical facilities, and then maybe just changes in physical environment, you know, traveling, visiting relatives, that sort of thing. Another possibility that was brought up was that perhaps there's the effect of terminally ill patients having the will to live or hold off death for a day that's important to them and then dying afterwards. So these are all sort of interesting hypotheses and something that we can all think about. Yeah, I think whatever the cause is, we can confidently say it's not due to shoveling snow as we often are doing here in Canada. Well, thanks, Ashley, for that. This week, I was reading about Nestle's 21st Century Sugar. Now, you and I have done a couple of episodes previously around sugar and the effects of sugar on diabetes and cardiovascular heart disease. Well, Nestle is trying to address that with the development of a new restructuring of sugar. And overall, the goal is to reduce the amount of sugar in its candy products, but it's technologically done in such a way that things taste sweet but contain less sugar, and it's not using an artificial sweetener. It's sort of difficult to describe, because it's, and it's not totally uh, out into the uh, full mainstream media yet, but each sugar particle is like a hollow box. So imagine that box frame was the sugar itself, and in the middle was just air. So 
you have that space that it takes up and the sweetness on the outside, but when it dissolves in your mouth, there's less sugar content within the actual particle, and therefore less sugar gets into the body, and hopefully less sugar overall accumulates in somebody who has a sweet tooth. It is the future of the food science industry, and I think that future looks sweet. Well, thank you, Ashley, for joining us this week. I had a lot of fun, and we look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks to listeners again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?